This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Tax lawyer Dorothy Brown knew something wasn't right when she filled out tax returns for her parents. Her father was a plumber and mother a nurse, and they were paying an unusually high percentage of their income in taxes. Brown, who's African American, set out to discover why. What she uncovered was racism in America's tax system. We need to have a conversation about how whiteness produces wealth. And there's nothing black people can do that will make us white. You know, whatever it is we do, we get disadvantaged and tax law hurts us to add insult to injury. Today, Brown talks about her book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Institute's Financial Security Program. In tax law, tax scholar Dorothy Brown says she thought the only color that mattered was green. But after decades of investigating the country's tax system, she discovered tax policy and societal racism are closely linked. Tax policy perpetuates disparities in access to every asset that makes up a household's balance sheet from education and homeownership to retirement savings. But she says that tax policy, which has been a driver of wealth inequality, can actually be used to close the wealth gap. She tells Aspen Institute Financial Security Program Executive Director Ida Rademacher that it took her 25 years of deep detective work to find a solution. It'll take a rethinking of the tax code, she says, and require both black and white Americans to make different choices. Here's Rademacher. I want to I want to start with a quote that's actually at the end of your book. At first glance, tax policy may not seem an obvious way to fight systemic racism, but its effects on black families are insidious, debilitating, and ubiquitous. My sense is that that's a that's a realization that came to you slowly and somewhat painfully. So I wonder if if we start at the end, maybe you go back to the beginning and say a little bit about who you are and how this book came to be. So I fell into this research. In fact, I went into tax law because I just knew it had nothing to do with race. In fact, I knew the only color that mattered was green. And imagine my surprise when I became an academic to discover or to think about maybe race has something to do with tax. And how I got there was by filling out my parents' tax returns. And Every year I'd fill out my return, I'd fill out their return. My income by myself was equal to my parents' combined income. And something always was off in their tax return. I thought they were paying too much, but I was doing it right. But I couldn't figure out what the problem was. So fast forward, I have the luxury of time when I become an academic and I read an article that says, How do you know there isn't a race and tax question if you don't look? And I thought, oh my gosh, could race have something to do with tax? And it was written, the article was written by a mentor and I picked up the phone and I said, I'm gonna write about race and tax. Easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Because if you take away nothing else from my talk today, take away this. The IRS does not collect or publish statistics by race. So everything in my book would have remained hidden had I not become a detective of sorts to find information elsewhere. Okay, so I make this promise and then I I discover, uh uh-oh, where am I going to get this data from? So I basically turned myself into a detective. 
whatever I've read, I was looking for some clues. And I read a Commission on Civil Rights report that said 40% of household income is contributed by Black wives compared to 29% by white wives. Now to you, that means nothing. To me, I had just struck gold because it explained why my parents are paying so much in taxes. They were paying so much in taxes because their incomes were close together. My mother and my father made almost identical amounts of income. Some years, my father's overtime would put him over the top. Some years, my mother would. Because their incomes were close together, when they got married, they wound up ultimately paying higher taxes simply because they were married. So this quest for does race have something to do with tax started with the marriage penalty and ended with my 25 years of research that led me to the conclusion that regardless of what black and white Americans do, tax policy subsidizes white Americans and disadvantages black Americans. And we'll unpack layer by layer where that conversation goes. And, and also you had to layer into data a, a lot of lived experience. You do a lot of translating in each piece of this book for people like me, for uh, for others in the world that really, that it's not intuitive the ways that tax policy is the case. Overall, as we have a conversation about racial inequity in the U.S. and specifically the drivers and the dimensions of the racial wealth gap, uh, I think that the disparities on display during COVID have been, they've been around health, they've been around income, and then we're increasingly seeing this wealth divide that grows and grows as the stock market goes forward and as we're having this K-shaped recovery in terms of what who's working and who's not. It's not intuitive that tax policies at the center of either a problem or the solution, but as you unpack what is tax policy and what is tax law is how does it play that central role? For, for folks who understand those pieces of a balance sheet, we already know that if you have wealth in America, it usually shows up in three places, maybe four, right? It shows up as home equity, uh, saving or stock investments, primarily through retirement savings for most Americans. It can show up in small business wealth. And then of course it shows up because of how people are educated and what kind of degree they have and what kind of job they get. You say that each one of those has a basis in tax policy. When we talked about this in preparation, and I said, if you had to pick just one, you told me that was a little bit like having to pick one of your kids. So can you talk a little bit about just broadly the headline here about tax policy in each of these dimensions that you go through in the book? Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned home equity, and I did a New York Times op-ed piece that talked about this. And really, tax policy interacts with societal racism. Or as I like to say, taxpayers bring their racial identities onto their 1040. Even though there's no box that gets checked, I'm still black when I complete my taxes, which means the systemic racism that has worked against me gets replicated and magnified in our tax system. So let's start with home, home equity. So we have tax subsidies for home ownership. And you're right, um, a white middle class has been built off of home equity. 
But what we see is the housing market is racist and anti-Black. What do I mean by that? Homes in predominantly Black or racially diverse neighborhoods are worth less than similar homes in white neighborhoods, okay? Why is that? Because most white homeowners do not want to live in a neighborhood with too many Black neighbors. Now, whenever I say that, I get pushback, right? The pushback is, I'm not a racist, but I'm worried about my home values. Or there's just a small percentage that are racist, and that causes all of the problems. That centers a white perspective. White Americans are interested in intent, but Black Americans who are harmed don't care whether you are a racist or you are acting like one. Because you do not want to live next door to people, too many people who look like me, I'm harmed, right? So we have tech subsidies for home ownership. The majority of homeowners are white. So tax subsidies for home ownership are going to benefit white homeowners, at which point you say, well, Dorothy, isn't the solution to just increase the number of Black homeowners? Yes and no. First, Black homeowners have significantly higher equity than renters. So it is a good thing to be a homeowner. However, when I buy a home, if I buy where I want to buy, where most Black Americans want to buy, I'm going to not have a good financial investment. And if I buy a home in an all-white neighborhood, I'm going to have a good financial investment, but I'm going to have problems. My neighbors might call the cops on me. My students might be racially profiled. So tax subsidies for home ownership not only benefits the majority of home ownership, it benefits how white Americans experience home ownership with tax-free gains on sale. Right. Let's and that's just one of my children. I know. Well, well I, I loved how you said it. You said, well, you're f- choosing among your kids would be hard. The marriage penalties and the marriage subsidies, they're kind of like your first kid, right? This is the one yes. you discovered. Homeownership was probably second because you were actually, a, you were in the world of finance. And you Homeownership were- was my last child. Okay. And I'll explain how that happened, right? So I write this marriage penalty, marriage bonus, and I got pushback from tax academics. In fact, this is one of my favorite, not so funny stories where I'm at a law professor conference and a tax academic, and I presented my marriage penalty bonus work. And the first question comment was to me, Dorothy, everybody knows your work is irrelevant because blacks are poor and don't pay a lot in taxes. Okay, so people are like, what? So I obviously respond that what you, if you're right, then we all want our kids to go to be poor. No, we don't. When our kids are going to be like Warren Buffett, right, with lots of income subject to either no tax or a low preferential rate. Okay. So I got pushback. And one of the pieces of the pushback was, well, Dorothy, this is really interesting, but I don't think you should write about this until you have a solution. Well, my response was, I needed tenure, and that might have taken me over 10 years to write, and I wouldn't have gotten it. But more importantly, how do you eat an elephant one spoonful at a time? So I had to take little pieces and then think about, because remember, I'm studying the Internal Revenue Code from a race and class perspective. Nobody has done this. I'm doing it. I want to make sure I'm getting it right. So I talk about home ownership, and then I go, I think, to the Erdic of tax credit, and then I go to retirements, and then I go to home ownership. And I did it from 
the rate structure was marriage, as well as the Earnica tax credit. Um, exclusions were retirement accounts. Home ownership was the deduction provision I looked at. So I was marching through different types of provisions, credits, rate structure, and along the way talked about the preferential rate for capital gains. But the last piece of scholarship I did was home ownership. And, and I really, with home ownership, figured out how race is brought into the tax law. It was what was going on in the market. It was the market for home ownership that was intersecting with the tax policy that caused white homeowners to win and black homeowners to lose. Mm-hmm. And we'll but get it's only after 25 years of studying that I began to say, oh, I think I know how we could fix this. But before I was just figuring out where the problem was. Yeah. Each of your chapters has a lot of the clear analysis of the issue and suggestions for solutions. At the end of the day, you kind of zoom back out though and say, but here's the deal, right? You say, but here's the big three. But there's actually a lot of playbook all the way through here, both for the systems and for individuals. You even kind of dig into the individuals and you you have advice for uh, Black Americans and you have advice for white Americans. And it's not the same. No, one of these is not like the other. Yes, yeah. it is not the same. And, and mainly, and, and like you say, each chapter I have solutions for that particular problem. But, you know, when I think about home ownership, right, the, what I, the advice I give to Black Americans is to be intentional. When you buy a home, recognize that depending on where you buy will determine whether it will be a good financial investment for you. And if you buy in a racially diverse or majority Black neighborhood, do not become house poor. Do not put all your money into your house. Save some of your money from investing in the home in the housing market for the stock market or a 529 college savings account or beefing up your retirement account because you have to diversify. Because for you, your home is not going to pay off the way your white working colleagues' home will pay off, right? So that's the advice I give for um, Black Americans. And I actually started writing my home ownership piece when I was selling a home in Virginia and I lived on a racially diverse neighborhood. The first home I bought and sold, it was an all white neighborhood subdivision, like 200 houses. It was me and one other black family that I didn't even meet till I was about to move out. That house sold like that, I made money. So I thought that's how it worked. Then I'm doing this research and I'm putting my house on the market and I have no takers and I'm like, what? is going on. And then I realized, ah, it's people who look like me and my neighbors who look like me who are, who are causing a fewer buyers to want to look in that neighborhood. Okay. So I figured that out the hard way, but the advice for white Americans is you basically, your preferences, whether they are virulent racism, or I'm worried about protecting my investment, your decision to live with not many Black neighbors are, it's causing harm to me and other Black homeowners. And that's one dimension of it. And, and I want to go on to some of the other kids here. Um, but 
I think the other thing you point out is that there's a big disparity between home ownership in general, between African-American and white American households for lots of reasons that go into these other issues, but also just centering tax incentives and credits or deductions around ownership, but having nothing that's parallel in a rental place creates even more of a way that the tax system itself isn't created to be realistic uh, with the lives of, of many Black Americans. So that's another part that you really do get into. So any subsidy for home ownership is going to benefit those, the majority of whom yeah. own homes. The majority of Black and Latinx are renters. So they're left out. That's why, you know, part of this rhetoric around, well, we just need to increase the percentage of Black and Latinx homeowners misses the the operation of the market. But yes, right off the bat, when we have tax subsidies for homeownership, we're helping white people and we're not helping Black people because most white Americans are not renters, but most Black Americans are. And then I think the other part of for homeownership that you also get into is legacy issues of inheritance and things like that. Before we go there, just to make sure this is Armando saying, you're you're saying white people should buy homes uh, within a diverse community instead of a majority white community. That's not what you're saying. Well, actually, what I'm saying is it's white preferences that are driving the racism in the housing market. If white Americans viewed all equal neighborhoods the same, we wouldn't have this differential in housing prices. Okay, so of course, and I saw one of the questions is, well, doesn't that raise gentrification, right? The reason that the housing market is depressed because black people live there is not because the house itself is not a good house. It's because of what it's perceived as, right? So gentrification is a problem and it's a particular problem when white Americans move in to a racially diverse neighborhood and try to center their experiences. So one of the pieces of advice I give to white homeowners, if you wanna live in a racially diverse neighborhood, don't make it about you because that neighborhood was doing fine without you, right? You need to come in, you need to understand the culture and you need to go with it and not say, well, I don't want this. And also one of my solutions deals with a wealth credit that would give to people in gentrifying neighborhoods, Black Americans in oh, general. We're going we're to spend a lot of time on the wealth credit. Don't you worry. Right? Excited it about would that. give them money every April 15th that would enable them to pay additional property taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, that is an issue, but I think I address it um, before I'm done with the book. Yeah, okay. I, think, I think you do too. So let's think about College. Switch education for a minute. Let's switch to college and let's and and just take us through the the top line of the ways that the tax code disproportionately plays into again enhancing wealth disparity um, around education. And it has to do with well, uh, I just said that if this had been my first child, none of the others may have been born because this college chapter, the, the great unequalizer, depressed me more than any of the other chapters. And to be clear, it's not like the other chapters were uplifting. This one was just so depressing and made me shut down the computer and just go stare at the ocean for a couple of hours to talk myself into even going back home. Forget like doing more research. And this was the statistic. 
60% of Black Americans don't graduate from college. 60% of those who attend don't graduate, okay? So they have debt, but they don't have a degree and they don't, they're not able to get another job, a good job that would allow them to amortize the debt. So that statistic took me out. That is a function of where we go to college. If you go to a selective school, the graduation rates are very, very high. If you go to a, a really selective school, they're like 90 something percent. And there's parity, black and white, in terms of completion. It's, it's close. It's yeah. not equal, but it's close. It would be like 96 and 94. Okay? okay. I mean, that's really close. Well, these selective institutions are the wealthiest among us. They're not for profits, they don't pay taxes, they don't pay taxes on their endowment, and they are not admitting a lot of black students. Yeah. Yeah. So they're getting tax subsidized to create white spaces for white kids to do really well and graduate. Okay, so that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we have very limited tax breaks for people who self-finance their college education. And Black students are more likely to self-finance or have their parents take out loans. Well, you only get a $2,500 deduction for interest and there are income cutoffs, 85,000 if you're single, 170 if you're married. Imagine two Black college graduates, each with 50 something thousand dollars of debt. They will not be able to take all of their interest in the early years because it's higher than 2,500, but they could take a good portion of it. Well, God forbid they marry each other. Now they can only take $2,500. That is crazy. So that's one other way that the tax law disadvantages black Americans who are more likely to graduate with higher debt loads than their white peers. And then the last way has to do with how white kids pay for their college. Grandparents and parents make gifts to pay for their college. Well, why can they do that? Because they have wealth. Whereas black college students don't have grandma and grandpa who are here under Jim Crow to build up the wealth to enable them to pay for that college. So the tax-free treatment of gifts and inheritances validates the way white Americans finance college and disadvantage the way black Americans do. In this pandemic recession, millions of Americans are going hungry and black and Hispanic households are hit harder than white ones. It's not the first time hunger has been tied to race. In our episode, How Racism Feeds the Hunger Crisis, food historian Fred Opie talks about how slave owners in America gave slaves just enough food to survive. To be an enslaved person was to experience hunger. It was just a reality of just constantly thinking about what was your next meal. Owners gave their enslaved people just enough to survive and they were on their own to do the rest. Families of color disproportionately lack access to clean water, air, and nutritious food. What are the solutions to this health crisis? Hear from Opie and others on the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast. Find the episode at aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Ida Rademacher. 
it struck me um, that there's other places that just where the disparities show up, where even high income parents of black students have much higher debt loads. Um, yes, they, they cannot protect wealthy black parents cannot protect their children from student debt the way their wealthy white peers can. And here's why because they don't have as much home equity, we just talked about the racist housing market, and they don't have financial assets like stock to the extent their peers do. So they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the wealth, and they don't have the wealth in the same way their white peers do. So we need to always focus across the income spectrum, not just on low-income Blacks, not just on middle-income Blacks, but on high-income Blacks, because many white Americans think, oh, once you're a Black middle class, you've made it. And what my book shows is au contraire. That's not true. Reading that reminded me of a statistic I had to go back and look up that I wrote in a congressional testimony, and it turns out it's 10 years ago now, you know, but I, I often used to say this, that income is not the same as wealth. And this statistic, I went back and looked it up. It was, um, it was a Brookings Institution piece. And this was I used to make the distinction that middle income does not equal middle class because I, like many people in your book, I'm much more comfortable talking about class than race. And your book has really, I think, made a case for why we need to push ourselves always right now to not stay in our comfort zone and to not conflate how we solve for these things. But the statistic was this, Hugh, 2009, two families, solidly middle income, If you looked at their children one generation later, everything else looked the same. 45% of the black children whose parents were solidly middle income were at the bottom of the income distribution as adults. That percentage for kids that were white was 16%. So I used to say that there was something else that was making the middle sticky. There was something else that was in there And I think a lot of that something else is wealth, but I also think a lot of that something else is how tax policy was playing in. What were the additional resources of that high income family to be able to finance the kid's college? And you say this a lot and we can go into the good jobs piece too, because when you think about, it's not even that there's not wealth creation going on, but there is a much bigger extended set of needs connected to any particular black person in the job market with a with one of the best jobs you talk about. So let's let's pivot to that a little bit. Yeah, so research shows that black college graduates are more likely to send money home to their parents and white college graduates are more likely to receive money from their parents. So even if you have a black american with a six-figure job, they are financing supporting a parent, a sibling, perhaps a grandparent, that is not tax deductible. Their next door neighbor at work who's white is getting money from their parents for a down payment for a home, to make sure their student loans are paid off, to pay for K through 12 of that colleague's children or their parents' grandchildren, right? So money is flowing down, whereas in the black household, There's this competition between grandparent and grandchild, right? Do I make sure that my mother isn't evicted or do I set aside money for my child? So it's it's 
heartbreaking to think about people who have done everything right. I went to college, I got the degree, I got the best job, and I'm still doing worse than treading water. The reason I call it the best jobs is because it comes with tax-free benefits like health insurance and retirement accounts. That's the right? thing. You make that. That's another place where you say that it's not always just about income. At, or, That's right. or as we talk about it um, in our most recent financial security framework, there's wage income, there's labor income, and there's non-labor income. And let's be really clear that they both matter a lot. And then in that non-labor income, there's a set of um, benefits that are really part of that. So, and and for you, I think you were quoting some of the great Brandeis research, um, yes. but I think it's, a th- you said a third of benefits, a third of overall salary package right. is it's that. Benefits. So talk a little bit, so, so talk a little bit more about how occupational segregation and the tax code come into play in such a big way in your analysis. So what you find is there are, white occupations, there are black occupations, there are Latinx occupations, and the white occupations are the ones most likely to come with tax-free benefits of health insurance and retirement accounts. And the predominantly black occupations are least likely to have those tax-free perks. And what you see is even when a black American is able to get one of those great jobs, and, and, and you've climbed Mount Everest to get to this point, when you get one of those jobs, Black Americans are more likely to have to withdraw money from their retirement accounts because of extended family needs. So Jim Crow societal racism has put Black Americans behind, and we are trying to fix our own problems that were created by the government, right? So we have more, but we wind up with less because we have family members who we love and who we are not going to turn a blind eye to. That society, however, and this uh, safety net has turned a blind eye to. Our, our upcoming leadership forum is going to be virtual again this year, but we're really doing a deep dive on the racial equity issues of the retirement saving system. The system itself has shifted from all defined benefit to majority yeah. defined contribution. So you talk a lot about that and the implications of that. And you don't just talk about which jobs have retirement as a benefit, but who takes it and why. And so I don't know if you could say a little bit about that. There's, there's other parity. It looks like if there's an automatic enrollment feature, correct? If there's an automatic, if you have to opt out, so you're automatically in the retirement account, but you have to opt out, research shows more people have retirement accounts. And that comes with a fixed investment plan. And that mean, and that comes with black employees and white employees having similar investment portfolios, which is a good thing. So we know there are things that you can do, that employers can do. I argue we need to tie tax subsidies for employers to that, right? So we, we need to tie tax subsidies for wages to employers that pay equal wages. We should require an audit of the companies so that they see that their black employees are not pushed into lower paying jobs when they're white employees when they're equally qualified. Mm -hmm. And over a three to five year period, if you don't fix it, you lose your wage deduction. Speaking of solutions, right? Employers are part of the problem. And honestly, so are universities because universities should care about the research I talked about in the book 
that if you're black and a Harvard graduate, you have to send more resumes to get an interview. And then when you get an interview, you're targeted toward lower paying jobs. Harvard should be doing audit studies to see what is happening to their graduates. And if an employer keeps doing this, they should be barred from, in, from interviewing on campus. So that's true across the board, right? Colleges can do better. Employers can do better. White homeowners can do better. At, at every stage, there are things that we can do to ameliorate it, but it's still a broken system. It's, it's a nail, but it, it thinks there's a lot of ways to get frustrated with any particular page. It takes, it takes some time with this book to go through because there's so many ways, once you see it, you can't see the ways that uh, this plays out differently for folks. But Dorothy, I'm going I'm to call you an iconoclast in the way that you actually start to size up solutions. And there is a whole chapter uh, as well on preferential you know, within the tax code, preferential um, rates. Treatment for stocks, yeah. Some of the work we did over the summer after the, the murder of George Floyd, and we, we reached out, we said, we need to be starting to figure out how to have a new conversation in this country about wealth. We need a new wealth agenda. And we're not alone in saying that. There is the business roundtable was looking at an entire range of racial equity work that corporations can lead on. We're going to get into the Biden executive order so what government can do, like that seems really exciting um, and important. The thing that has gotten the most play has been around, you know, hiring more Black talent and making sure that there's more capital flowing to small businesses. Those are incredibly important, but they're also not going to close the racial wealth gap. No, and they're not going to close the racial wealth gap because the system is designed for white wealth, okay? Until we fix the system, then we're, we're going to see more of what we're seeing. Now, we can do things to slow it down, right? We can forgive student debt. You know, there are things we can do to slow it down, but we actually have to have a conversation which will require white Americans to admit they got where they got, not because it's a meritocracy, but because grandma or mom and dad gave yeah. them a boost. At the end of the day, you come up with three things, even though there's all of these different things to do within each of these systems. At the end of the day, you go, but you know what? That's still the system. And that system is still built to privilege white, you know, white well families. Building. And so mm -hmm. you say a couple of things on page 213, you call, you say, I call on white Americans to consciously shift their behaviors. If you're a white American taxpayer, no matter your income or your history, the system has benefited you at the expense of black Americans and you must be intentional about dismantling it. And then you also say how over and over, and I wanna hear some of the stories of people because your book is full of people and stories and experiences that you actually ended up being, you've got amazing characters, Black Americans in here. You've got Rachel, you've got Joe Paul, you've got all these incredible folks. You have very few whites that were willing to go on record because they were uncomfortable talking about the ways that they had had advantage. No individual wanted to skew, you know, the way that they, and they didn't want to look bad. You said they downplayed the inheritances, they downplayed the gifts. They did no want to go on to record to discuss their good fortune. And so we not only have to reckon with the systems, you really do call on us to have a different dialogue. 
Is yes. there chicken and egg to that? Well, you know, I'd say it goes back to the notion, you know, so the white Americans that were interviewed for the book didn't want us using their last name. They didn't want to be associated, you know, their families associated, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that this is silent really facilitates Black Americans thinking, I must be doing something wrong. Because the person sitting next to me in the same job can't be making that much more than me. How are they able to send their kids to K through 12? How are they able to buy a house? How are they able? Well, they may not have bought the house. Grandma, when she died, might have left them the house. But they don't say that. White people don't walk around saying, I have my house because my grandma gave it to me. And it, so we need to have a conversation about how whiteness produces wealth. And there's nothing black people can do that will make us white, okay? So you, you know, tell us get married, higher taxes, no tax cut, buy a house, we're gonna get screwed in the finances, get a good job, I'm gonna have to withdraw from my retirement account to pay for my, for my relative. You know, whatever it is we do, we get disadvantaged and tax law hurts us to add insult to injury. Whereas white Americans are just, living their lives, scooping up tax cuts, building wealth and thinking, it's not that hard. I don't know why more black people can't do it. So to some extent, this is such the norm for white Americans. They don't even know, although let's be clear, the people interviewed the book knew, which is why we're talking about their last names, right? They don't necessarily know that this doesn't happen in all families. That's what privilege does. And that's why the conversations seem so critical to start having out loud. Right. Yes. Yes. Which is one of the things I call for in the book. Tell your stories out loud. Aspen can help do that. I think we I think it's one of the incumbencies of our institution to help create a place that's safe for everyone. But um, sometimes we privilege the safety of some over others and we need to be holding ourselves really accountable for that and and changing on it. At At the end of the day, the stories are going to be most powerful if they're aligned with your big solutions. And I want to lay them out for folks just to fe- just so people know, get through all the kids, but then get to the party at the end. Because I think, Dorothy, you've, you've done a couple of things that are also quite disruptive, even to the set of individuals who are really already deeply into solving for racial wealth inequality. You have a pragmatic streak with how you solve for these things. I really do. So just to say the three, I'll, I'll unpack them quickly so you can talk about them. You know, at the end of the day, you can change all the things within each, each area of the tax code, but it's not going to change wealth inequality because we're still dealing in a system that we can't see the privilege in. So the first thing you talk about is the disinfectant of daylight, and that comes in the form of data, right? So that's going to go to one piece of that. The second piece, I've decided that my term for what you want to do to the, the tax code is you want to Marie, Maria Kondo the tax code. You want to, you want yes. to, and I want to hear about that. And then at the end of it, while you talk about the need for and the ideal of reparations in the tax code, you end with a wealth credit uh, because of what legal precedent is in this country. So I want you to take each of those and say a little bit about why those three for you feel like the starting point versus the iterative pieces. So the data. Without my book, you don't know any of this. And no one should be put through 25 years of research like I was to come up with this book. 
we need IRS statistics by race, period, end stop. And the president's, President Biden's executive order called for the disaggregation of data by race and ethnicity, among other um, issues like disability, et cetera, et cetera. But so I'm optimistic, but I'm not too optimistic because he doesn't have in the treasury. So the person in the treasury who's responsible for this is the assistant secretary for tax policy. This is an academic who's never written about race. So I don't know how on earth the president expects his executive order to be implemented at treasury when the person he's put in charge talks about wealth, but not race. Talks about inheritance, but not race. Okay, so Houston, we have a problem. Somebody can fix that. But we need the data. We need it public so that we can talk about it. Number two, the Maria Kondo, the tax code. Oh my God, I love that. It's basically getting rid of these deductions, exclusions, exemptions, because they're benefiting white Americans. Get them gone. Let's have all income tax the same. Income from capital should be taxed the same as income from labor. I should pay the same tax rate when I work for my money as when my money works for me, okay? And the only deduction you'd have is a living allowance. So if you don't make enough to live in your geographical area, the difference gets paid to you by the government. If you make more, then you pay tax at a progressive rate on the difference. Is that your wealth credit? No. Next, okay. No. That's just in my Maria Kondo system. It's okay. clean, the base is broad in my system and therefore the tax rates do not have to be that high. Okay, the wealth credit, my ideal, would be to have a reparations tax credit for black Americans like my parents who have paid higher taxes for decades. The Supreme Court's not gonna allow that. They're gonna find that unconstitutional. So my second best alternative that I believe the Supreme Court would readily find constitutional is a wealth credit. Anyone with below median wealth gets a tax credit, okay? So they, they wind up with a check to the government. So below median wealth, think about the gentrifying neighborhood and the elderly black couple who's had their home forever. Well, they don't have wealth. They have below median wealth. They're gonna wind up getting a tax credit that will help them pay for their increased property taxes. So the wealth we can, the Supreme Court has said, we can discriminate on the basis of wealth which means I can have a tax system that says low wealth people, you get this break, high wealth people, no break for you. And interestingly enough, if you do go to a wealth credit pragmatically because it's constitutional, even if it's not ideal. Oh, white Americans will wind up getting it. Let me just say and the it's, obvious. And it's politically probably more feasible too. I mean, these are questions to be debated in longer conversations about there's deep uncomfort with a wealth tax, a wealth credit, potentially. You know, it's, yes. it's a different thing. Uh, there's a lot of other issues here as well. But I think that the, the data provides us with the ability to refute our own Instincts. information we have our, with ourselves, our own reference group, right? Right. We can really right. have real conversations around that. The need to look at tax reform, and it's been since 1986 since we've had a major tax reform for households. So there's a lot of, I think, conversation around that. And I think especially grouped with the executive order, and the IRS, we can look at that. And then the wealth credit, we can get into that as well. The one thing I want to say about the tax data 
Yeah. You know, uh, the president is starting to talk about his tax plan, but there's a disconnect because he's not connecting it with race. He's talking about tax proposals, but no one in the administration is remembering he signed this executive order. Why are we going to collect race and tax data if not to apply in tax reform discussions? So whenever you hear someone talking about a tax reform proposal, you should be thinking, what impact is that going to have on the racial wealth gap? Mm -hmm. What are the racial disparate impacts of that proposal? And if you're not hearing it from the Biden administration, the Biden administration is not living up to what they said they were going to do with that executive order. It's a good first step. There's going to need to be a lot of external pressure, encouragement, help. Yes, because I'm already seeing... Yep. This talk, this conversation about Biden's tax plan, and no one is talking about race. And it's like, did you, did he not mean it when he said it? I believe he meant it when he said it. But because race and tax has not previously been connected together, people don't get. You cannot talk about tax policy without talking about race. Yep. A number of people are talking about reparations and should estate taxes fund reparations? Does the book address reparations? Maybe say a little bit more about what, what's in here and what still needs to be grappled with. So to be clear, I talk about a reparations tax credit as a way to um, compensate Black taxpayers who have paid extra. That's the extent of my discussion of reparations in the book. Uh, Sandy Darity and Kristen Mullen have written a book from here to equality, an entire book about reparations. I recommend you read it. The the book I want to write next is about reparations. That's the next book. That's not this book. Okay. So in, in talking about reparations, I support reparations. But if everybody, if every Black person were to get $100,000 tomorrow, we would use it in a system designed for white wealth. We have to clean up the system that produces white wealth before reparations, in my opinion, could have, could make a significant dent. You know, you actually are, you're favorably inclined around the baby bond idea, except that if you put that into the existing system, say somebody at 18 does have 46,000, and they have that extended family. There's, you have your doubts that, again, without the cleaning up of the system, these are the right solutions, but they need an additional layer of fix. What they need, I think, is to be based on wealth and not income, because you actually have high-income Black Americans who don't have a lot of wealth because they are paying for family members. So, you know, baby bonds that would pay for college, that could pay for homes, homes, in the, you know, the messed up system, right? So they would get the most bang for their buck if they cleaned up the system. But if, if we saw baby bonds tomorrow, it would make a difference in the lives of individual Black Americans. It, it said something about white people have higher income, but they also have more deductions. So it isn't just, you know, an $80,000 white person with income and an $80,000 Black person with income. They're going to wind up with different taxable income. Because white Americans are going to, that same household is going to have a mortgage interest deduction that the black couple household may not have. They're going to have tax-free gifts that the black person is not getting. So our system that tells you if you make $80,000, you're equal is the problem. That is not, our progressive tax system 
benefits white Americans because mo a lot of white Americans get out of the progressive tax system by having stock <laughs> that's taxed at the low preferential rate. So this notion that progressive tax helps black people. No, I wrote a whole book refuting that. <laughs> And the marriage chapter, which we glossed over, actually goes into a lot of the aha moments you had trying to understand most of this. I'll end us on this broader question because I think there's a major opportunity here. And I think this is why your book is so timely. There's a reckoning happening in America with racial inequity. And there are leaders in the private sector and there are leaders in the public sector that mean to take action, to deliver. Agreed. And so I think that at the moment, we need to be getting smart and fast about who needs to be talking to who. And so one of the questions here is about who needs to be at the table in order to craft blank, more equitable tax policy, more equitable education, who needs to be at the table to craft more equitable governance structures and business. I think there's a bit of a generic answer from you about who are the kinds of people, you can't be at every table, Dorothy, but how do we start this process? So who needs to be at the table are, they're the community organizers who've been working on these issues forever. They are the scholars who have been working on these issues. So let's be clear, white reporters have been calling me about race and tax since the murder of George Floyd. I spent the prior 23, 24 years in the wilderness, okay? I couldn't get a white reporter who wanted to talk to me about race and tax. So I think you're right, we are at a moment, but I, I think the anyone who wants to make a difference needs to get informed, needs to read, needs to, to who's been doing the work. In every area, there are people who have been doing the work. There are other people who have written about, so Jeremy Friend, who's a professor at George Washington Law School, wrote an amazing piece about the IRS as colorblind, right? He needs to be at the table. There's a deeper bench. And as with most things right now, it's gonna be incumbent on us to be super intentional and do our homework. And it's not okay to not have a very different set of people. And wow, what's gonna be different because we are. Thank you for your leadership and thank you for your time. Thank you. Dorothy Brown is the author of The Whiteness of Wealth, how the tax system impoverishes black Americans and how we can fix it, which was released this month. Ida Rademacher co-chairs the Aspen Partnership for an Inclusive Economy. Today's conversation was held by the Institute's Financial Security Program. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.